0: Welcome to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day. Each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, an austere religious scholar who will be your host in this roundup of the past month of Fake News. I say month because I've been out of pocket a lot this month. I haven't really had a program (laughs) this month, frankly. Um... I did do a two-part retrospective on Pride Months, and I honestly I felt like that was one of the most important things I'd done on the show so far. So I just wanted to let that stand for a little while, and um, and uh, I and it's a little bit of a slow news time, uh, you know, summertime, not as much news is happening uh, until this past week, really, and Roe versus Wade happened, or I could say it unhappened, <laughs> and so let's talk about that as our first story of today um and, and i would say this is the most major supreme court decision of my entire life I, I don't think i need to go into the whole like what it is what it means because you you probably know by now um in fact i didn't want to do a program on friday because i really wanted to let a, i wanted to let this sink in for a few days you know i just wanted to kind of like it was it it's still when i wake up in the morning and i think roe versus wade is gone it, it no longer has any bearing on our on our legal system. It's still like new to me each morning. I still have to like kind of make myself believe it again because it's so unbelievable uh, to be someone who's been in this fight for basically basically my whole life. As long as I've known about the issue, it's been the most important issue to me to be pro life and to hope hopefully see an end to abortion entirely someday. Um, you know, you you sacrifice for this thing. You pray for this thing. You you donate money to to causes. You vote for politicians who will overturn it. And yet you, you don't believe that they might ever have the bravery and the courage to actually do it. But that has changed now. (laughs) Four heroically brave justices have decided to overturn, or sorry, six, six. Um, It was, it was really only five. John Roberts only went along with it because the majority was already, was already going to do it. Um, so I don't, I don't want to, I bet, but Hey, at the end, at the end of the day, John Robert signed on. So it was a six judge decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, in fact, Roe versus Wade was put into place by a panel of old white men. I think it was seven <laughs> and, and, uh, it was overturned by a court majority that included a black man, a mother, an Italian And so I'd say this was also a huge win for diversity. (laughs) Um, So Roe versus Wade is no more. And our laws going forward can hopefully be a bit more sensible. Um, And and as I've been saying, this is not an end to abortion. And I probably don't need to explain this, but then again, the Democrats are out there. They are spreading a lot of lies and misinformation about this ruling. We'll talk about that later. But um, it doesn't end abortion entirely. What it does is it gets rid of a, a so-called constitutional right to abortion. It, it strikes down the notion that the Constitution specifically allows people to kill their own children in the womb. That is no more. That is history. That is, literally, it's history. <laughs> It'll be read right about in the history books that at one time our country enforced that for nearly 50 years, but no more. So now it's a state's rights issue. A state can decide for themselves if they want to allow abortion all the way up to the point of birth, if they want to allow it, not at all, or if they want to do something in between. And I'd say most states will probably end up somewhere in between setting a cutoff of six weeks or 20 weeks or, or something like that. But um, but there will be some of those extreme states like like New York or Virginia where they will allow abortion up to the point of birth. You know, that's that's until we get that dialed back. I mean, that is that's what we're going to be dealing with. So um, again, something the, the mere fact that Roe v.ersus Wade is now out of the way and it paves the road forward to to roll back abortion um, allowances, to, to roll back abortion in the United States of America, the fact that Roe v.ersus Wade is out of the way, the biggest hurdle that is now jumped. The biggest rock is now out of our path. And we actually have a path forward on enacting pro-life policies all around this country. And so I'm going to tell you, I made a prediction last year. I don't know if you remember, if you've been listening that long, but I did predict that this would not happen this year. <laughs> and I remember saying when, when the Supreme Court was arguing this back in like November, I think, or December, when they, were, when they were hearing the arguments on this case, You know, I remember saying back then here on this show, I wish they would overturn it. I would love it if they overturned it, but I did not think they would. One, I didn't think they'd have the courage. And it does take courage. I mean, a few weeks ago, somebody tried to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh. So, I mean, it takes some courage to tell the Democrats, we're going to roll back the baby killing. You know, that makes them go nuts. They have been going nuts. So it took bravery, and I applaud them for that. Um, and, And honestly, so for that reason, I didn't think they would have the courage to overturn Roe versus Wade. Also, I thought that they might make a political calculation that... In an election year, which 2022 is a midterm election year, I thought, well, they might not, you know, want to shake anything up with the, with all that. They might not want to overturn Roe versus Wade while the Democrats have a majority, a, a very narrow majority in the Senate, because they could try to pack the court or something like that. So I thought they'd make a political calculation and that they wouldn't want want this to go through. And I was wrong. And I'm so glad I was wrong. Because I don't even care what happens with the election this year. I think the, the Republicans will still win in the midterms, but I don't even care. Because we got Roe versus Wade out of the way. Biggest political victory for the, for the pro-life side in, in, I mean, in American history, to be honest. Um, most significant Supreme Court decision since they put in Roe versus Wade. Probably the most significant Supreme Court decision, like, ever. As far as, you know, as far as how many lives are going to be saved because of this. You know, every Supreme Court decision is going to have some effect on loss of life or something like that, you know, at some point. But nothing kills as many people each year as abortion does. And so on a on a pure lives lost calculation, this is the most important Supreme Court decision perhaps ever. And I'm so thankful for it. I want to give credit to where credit is due. we got to give credit to Donald Trump, Okay, which I don't mind doing. But you know, he he gets a lot of hate. I have things I criticize about Donald Trump. In 2016, I didn't believe he would actually put pro-life judges on the on the bench. I didn't think he'd actually do it. I'm, I'm thankful he did. I you know, he said he would. But Trump said a lot of things. He said he said, you know, he said he thought his sister would make a great Supreme Court justice. His, Donald Trump's sister is a judge, and he said he thought she would be great as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, she's not pro-life. She's very pro-choice. She would have upheld Roe versus Wade if he'd put her on the Supreme Court. Thankfully, he didn't do that. But you know what? I didn't trust him in 2016, so I didn't vote for him. And uh, But I have to say, he pretty much gets a, a, a huge chunk of the credit for this because we've had lots of Republican presidents since Roe versus Wade. We've had lots of Republican appointments to the Supreme Court since Roe versus Wade. And yet it was Trump's picks who got the ball rolling on overturning this. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Donald Trump. And despite all the bad about Trump, you know, if he ends up being the nominee in 2020, I'll strongly consider voting for him in 20, or I'm sorry, in 2024. If he ends up being the nominee next time around, you know, I'll probably vote for him because he's actually got <laughs> some stuff done, regardless of some of the misgivings I've had about him in the past. I didn't vote for him in 2020. Sadly, he didn't win, um, but I felt like he'd earned my vote by that point. And, you know, despite my misgivings, he got stuff done, and I appreciate that. So credit to Trump, credit to Trump. I give, uh, as I said, credit to these Supreme Court justices. It took a lot of courage. Clarence Thomas, uh, superstar this week. <laughs> you know, President Joe Biden, back when he was Senator Joe Biden, he tried to destroy Clarence Thomas's life when Thomas was going before the the Senate to be voted on, to be confirmed. You know, like Democrats constantly do with with, with Republican nominees. Um, he tried to destroy him, B- President Biden, Senator Biden back then. He tried to destroy Clarence Thomas, and uh, Clarence Thomas got confirmed anyway. And he's the best judge we probably got on the Supreme Court right now. Uh, so I, th- I thank him. I thank Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito. Uh, great job to all you guys. Thank you to all the pro-life activists who've been fighting for this for, for years, everyone who's voted to make this become a reality. Uh, and, and honestly, I know I already talked about Trump, but anyone who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, thank you. <laughs> you know, I, as I said, I didn't vote for him. I didn't trust him back then. I thought, oh, he's he's going to run the Republican party into the ground. And honestly, he saved the Republican party. He changed it. You know, and that, that's what I was afraid of. I thought he'd change it. Well, he did, but he made it stronger and was able to stand up to this culture and actually see conservative Republican policies advance. And so thank you to Trump. Thank you to everyone who voted for him in 2016. Um, You all deserve a lot of credit. Anyone who told you, uh, including if it was me back then, anyone who told you that you shouldn't vote for Trump. I never told anyone they shouldn't vote for Trump. I understood why people, you know, he was the Republican nominee. It was either him or Hillary Clinton. I could totally understand why somebody, somebody would vote for him. Personally, I just couldn't do it. But I want to say this. Anybody who, you know, people tried to make you feel bad about it for voting for Trump in 2016, <laughs> you have been totally vindicated, if not before, certainly now. So thank you to all of you who voted. And um, uh, so let's talk a little bit more about this issue. I just I wanted to get that celebratory stuff out because I'm just so thankful. I'm so glad for, for where we are right now. But um, ever since this decision... The liberal left has been freaking out and repeating, you know, all the lies that didn't get them anywhere before. They've just been repeating those ad nauseum ever since Friday. Uh, Liberals complaining that, you know, we pro-lifers, we only care about kids before they're born, that we don't care about pregnant women. You know, they say this kind of stuff all the time, that you're only pro-birth, you're not (laughs) pro-life, you know, just their baseless smears. But what's so funny about that smear is if you just look at the data, if you look at the facts... Pro-lifers have shown up for decades that they're the ones who adopt and foster, that they create crisis pregnancy centers. Um, so for people on the left, if you care about babies, if you care about pregnant women, and they live in a state that doesn't allow abortion, what do you need to be doing? You need to donate to a crisis pregnancy center. <laughs> it's your turn to show that you care because we've been showing it for decades. We've been showing it with with our money, with our time, with our volunteer work. With the stuff we create and and with the sacrifices that we've made. As I said, pro lifers are number one who adopt and foster. So if, if somebody wants to send me an email complaining about anything I say today or challenging anything I say today, go ahead. Cross-references at gmail.com. Now, if you're gonna use the same stupid and meaningless slogans that pro choice activists have used for the past fifty years, you know, my body, my choice, all that all that dumb stuff, you know, don't bother because that I'm not going to just waste time debunking stuff that has been debunked a million times before and has gotten you guys nowhere. You know, you do have a choice what to do with your body, but you don't get to destroy someone else's body. The unborn child has their own body. Don't try to tell me this is about reproductive freedom because if you need an abortion, you know what that means? It means reproduction has already taken place. So it's not a choice about whether or not you will reproduce. You've already reproduced. Now it's a choice about what to do with the life that you have created. Okay. So it's not about reproduction. If an abortion is needed, reproduction has already happened. People want to say, what about rape and incest? Well, here's what I always ask. If we want to make, if we make exceptions for rape and incest, will you shut up? (laughs) Will you, will you agree to save the other babies? If we can make an exception for rape and incest, they're not going to shut up. They still want the, all the other abortions too. Almost all abortions are elective. They're not about rape. Or in- like 1%, according to the New York Times, 1% of abortions are about rape and incest. Okay? So if we set those aside and just talk about the others, you still want abortion. Don't pretend it's about rape and incest. <laughs> just shut up. It, or when people say, you can't legislate morality. All laws legislate someone's morality. Okay? Grow up. <laughs> Get a clue. So if you want to email me something stupid like that, You know, don't bother, because I'm going to ignore it. If you have an actual argument, again, cross-reference this podcast at gmail.com. It's in the show notes. Uh, Send us your feedback, okay? But don't send stupid slogans that don't mean anything, because you've tried with those meaningless, pathetic arguments, which are not even arguments, they're just slogans. You've tried that for 50 years, and look where that got you. Abortion rights are being rolled back because there is no such thing as an abortion right. It's not a right granted in the Constitution— it's not a right in the Declaration of Independence. It's not a right in the Bill of Rights. It's not a right granted from God. So where do you think a right to an abortion comes from? It comes from your imagination, okay? <laughs> this is what the left does, but you can't. You can't just declare something a right because you want it, okay? They love to say this, health care is a right. No, it's not. College is a right. Free college is a right. No, it's not. Just because you want something... Doesn't make it a right. Rights don't come from Bernie Sanders' Twitter account. They're given by God. That's the understanding of rights in this country, that our rights come from our creator. So rights come from God. Murdering your child is not on the list. And you can't root rights in your own imagination. It's not going to get you very far. So the Dems freaking out about this ruling. Honestly, they don't even understand it. Okay? All Supreme Court said, all SCOTA said, was that this is not a right in the constitution. Okay. Roe versus Wade asserted that it was, but it was not. There's no right to an abortion in the constitution or the bill of rights. Roe versus Wade just wanted to pretend it did. And the left has been pretending this for 50 years, but it's not there. And it was this Supreme court who just had the the simple bravery to say, it's not there. Okay. The emperor has no clothes. You all are pretending you see it. It's not there. And that does take courage to say, because like I said, the left has been marching outside of their houses, threatening their lives. Assassination attempt was already tried on one. They've been protesting outside their houses. Um, Like I got on Reddit the other day and I see a post. Someone's posted all the addresses of where these Supreme Court justices live so people can go harass them at their house. All the Supreme Court did was its job. They were interpreting the law in accordance with the Constitution. And the, dem- the Democrats are going around calling this a threat to democracy. <laughs> they say, how can democracy survive now that our elected officials are going to start making laws for us again? Because that's what's going to happen in all these states. The elected officials are going to make the laws. That's why it's called what we have is a republic. A democracy says majority rules. Okay? That, that would mean you just put the issue for abortion up for a vote, and you vote on it yes or no. That would be majority rule. That's not what we have in this country. We have a republic. We elect people. Our republicans, our senators, state, state, or sorry, representatives, senators, state reps, state senators, all those people, they go to our Capitol buildings for us, and they vote on the laws. So we, uh, you know, every time the the people try to say we have a democracy, it's a republic. Okay? There's a difference. And that's what we have. But anyway, every time the Democrats say democracy is at stake... Remember that they also don't even care about our democracy or our constitutional republic or or our our entire government system. They don't care about it. Okay? They hate it. They they hate our constitution. They want to burn the system to the ground. Democrat politicians. They were out chanting this week that the Supreme Court is illegitimate. What you know, actual people in Congress going out chanting that the Supreme Court is illegitimate. They they spend all their time pretending to care about Trump's so-called insurrection on January 6th of 2021. But the truth is the Democrats would love an insurrection. They just wish they could try it first. <laughs> they, don't, they don't care about our democracy. They want to destroy it. That's why they talk about open borders, nuking the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, rescinding the Second Amendment, letting non-citizens vote, tearing down statues and monuments undefining womanhood, disregarding biological reality, destroying heteronormativity, destroying the nuclear family. They want to destroy our society. They want to burn it all down and rebuild it in their image. And the main thing standing in the way of that is our constitution. And standing in front of our constitution are you and I. And this week, we proved that we're more powerful than they thought. In ancient Israel, they had a Sabbath. Once a week, um, that meant that once a week they would take a day and do no work. So when it, once every seven days, take a Sabbath. And then they also had something called the Sabbath year. That once every seven years, they would take a they would take a year not to not do work during that year, but they would they would let their fields rest. They wouldn't grow anything. So once every seven years, they had a, a Sabbath year where they didn't grow anything in that field to let the field rest, to let the land rest for a year. So they had a Sabbath once a week. They had a Sabbath year every seven years. And then they had another thing. Every seven Sabbath years, they had something called the year of Jubilee. Now, every seven Sabbath years would mean seven times seven, because you had a Sabbath year every seven years. So it would take you seven years to get to one Sabbath year. So every seven Sabbath years, that would be 49 years, okay? Okay. They had a year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was a special time, because in the year of Jubilee, so the 50th year after the 49, after the set of 49, in the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven, all servants were released of their contractual labor, all the land was returned to its original families. That was called the year of Jubilee. Everything was set free. That was what it meant, freedom. Well, I was just thinking about that this week as Roe versus Wade It was 49 years ago. And to me, it just feels kind of like the babies. They've just been given a year of jubilee. Because starting on Friday, June 24th, 2022, lives are going to be saved. Babies are going to be set free. This oppressive law that has resulted in more death in this country than anything else in history, any war, any sickness, anything, this law has been taken off the necks of these babies in the womb. More babies are going to be born. More lives are going to be saved. And it all started this past Friday. So I know I spent a lot of time on the previous two episodes complaining about Pride Months, but I just have to say, this has been the best Pride Month ever. Well, I'm going to do a little segment here um, called Told You So. And this is just proving what we said last time about pedophiles. Uh, So I made a little bit of an audacious claim on the previous episode, episode 30. That was part two of a two-parter. So if you have not listened to that, please go back and listen to it because I think it's the most important information that you will find, period, on the origins of this whole thing of Pride Month, where it all comes from and where it's going next. And here's what I said about where it's going next. If you think this sounds far out there, a little extreme, um, well, I'll prove today that it's not extreme. But my prediction on that episode was that there's this sexualization of children going on, leading to a normalization of pedophilia. And I say that because we see the same same, um, tactics, the same process that was used to normalize homosexuality and transgenderism we see that those same principles being applied to pedophilia today. And if that sounds extreme, one, you can go back and listen to the, the last episode, episode 30, where I make that case, or two, here's some headlines that have come out since then. Okay. So here's one. I didn't see where this one came from. It's here's the headline. Uh, I think it's summit news is what it's called. Here's the headline. Queer ethics professor calls for pedophilia to be destigmatized and taught in schools. That's a headline from Tuesday, June 14th. Okay. Uh, A so called ethics professor from Norway has claimed that pedophilia should be classed as an innate sexuality and taught in schools. So I'm calling this segment Told You So, because the exact thing I was telling you about just a few weeks ago, and, and there's already been examples of it before, but here it is again. And as I've been saying, every, you know, it used to be every few years. Some prominent person, like a university professor or something like that, someone with a position of influence was calling for a normalization of pedophilia. Now it happens every few months. It's starting to feel like it's every few weeks. There's another professor calling for pedophilia to be, as this one says, taught in schools, taught as a sexuality. Just like you have people who are gay, people who are bisexual. You also have people who are pedophiles. They're trying to find a better, you know, a name that doesn't have such a stigma to it minor attracted person they're trying to find a new name to call them but they're trying to teach it as a as a sexual orientation that's unchangeable and just a part of who someone is and what makes them who they are um Washington Post they posted this opinion piece and let me just say this this piece was in response to how at a lot of gay pride parades there's a lot of sexually explicit um stuff going on literally at in at gay pride pride parades here in north america just this past weekend there were literally naked people just walking through the crowd just just like a few dozen naked people that were just nudists walking through the gay pride parade and there's children all lined up watching this gay pride parade some disgusting parents take their kids to these things where they know sexual stuff is going to go on and you know what now at gay pride parades (laughs) You know, we used to point out like, oh my gosh, they're wearing such revealing clothing and talking about sexually explicit things. Now they're just literally walking naked down the street. So that's what was going on. And so anyway, that was this past weekend. But one thing that's been pointed out is um, people who are wearing what's called kink, okay? And kink is non-conventional sexual practices. (laughs) That's the best definition I'm going to give you because I had to Google it. I'm like, I don't, how do you even describe that? Non-conventional sexual practices, okay? So people wearing really just like disturbing, like BDSM type of gear walking down the street in front of children. This is how the Washington Post reports on it, okay? An opinion piece by Lauren Ruello, a groomer. She says, yes, kink belongs at Pride and I want my kids to see it. That is her headline in the Washington Post. Subhead. Children need to know that they can make their own ways in the world. So this is what, this is how someone, the normalization of the sexualization of kids, someone acknowledging, yeah, you know what, some sexually explicit disturbing stuff goes on at the gay pride parades, and I want my kids to see it. That's what she says. Another thing we've been talking about is this uh, drag queen's Men dressed up as women in leotards and other very revealing clothing. going Which before long, they'll probably just be nudists going to schools too. And having school assemblies where you watch a drag queen dance for you. Okay? So Fox News reports, Michigan Attorney General says drag queens make everything better. Suggests drag queen for every school. So the, the Michigan Attorney General, who's a Democrat says, yeah, I know a lot of people are upset that we're having men come and perform these sexual dances and twerking for kids at schools and school assemblies, some of these elementary school age kids. A lot of people are upset about that. We need to have one in every school in Michigan. That's the Democrat. That, that's how they just double down. You you call them on this depraved nonsense that they do, and they just say, yeah, we're going to do more of that. So anyway, that's that's just my told-you-so segment. We are seeing the sexualization of kids and normalization of pedophilia. It's happening in your schools. It's happening at these gay pride parades. And it's happening in the public libraries. So just want you to keep your head on a swivel. Be aware of that. Okay, let's talk about some of this January 6th stuff. Now, I've been ignoring the January 6th stuff. Because with the left, they're always trying to control the conversation. Um, the left, you know, they, they, they want to talk about January 6th. So they make it their front and center thing for, for months, for over a year now. Um, but but what I say is I'm not obligated to talk about something just because they want me to, especially when it's something as empty and meaningless as this, okay? I already did an episode covering January 6th. It was a bad thing. It was not nearly as bad as the Democrats pretend it was, but I mean, I acknowledge it was bad. Also, it was a year and a half ago. Nothing about it has any relevance anymore. Um but the, G- the Democrats, this is all they have. Because otherwise they have to talk about what a bad job they're doing on the economy and with gas prices and, and everything they've been trying to do. So they just want to talk about January 6th. And they have all these conspiracy theories. They say that Trump tried to incite a crowd of these random people to invade the Capitol and like overthrow the government somehow. Okay? They've, there's never been any details that have come out that have made further sense of this. There's never been a bigger or more important story in American history than this. This is the most important story in the history of the republic. These January 6th hearings are remarkable. They are riveting. The hearings last night, they were searing. They were vivid. It was compelling. It was chilling. The videos were chilling. And it was, it I think it's going to be historic. This was a historic, compelling hearing. This is very compelling uh, television because it's a very compelling hearing and it's compelling. It's must see TV. This is the most important and disturbing uh, incident that's ever happened in the 246 years of the American constitutional Republic. <laughs> they always act like, Oh my gosh, this new information changes the way we see January 6th. They've always seen it the same way. They've always tried to paint it as an insurrection, like a literal attempted takeover of the government. Okay. Which let me let me just remind you of this one detail from the episode I did on January sixth. I did one back at the start of this year, a one-year retrospective on it. Um, let me just remind you of a detail that the lawmakers had been cleared out of the Capitol forty minutes, forty minutes before the rioters came in. Okay, it wasn't like they just they just narrowly escaped into some kind of situation room or emergency, you know, bunker, <laughs> narrowly avoiding. The hordes of murderous lunatics invading the Capitol. It wasn't like that. They were out of there for a whole 40 minutes before the protesters walked in. So anyway, the January 6th conspiracy theories. They say that Trump tried to overthrow the government that day. All right? And then no, no details that have come out since then. There is nothing that has come out since then that has made us think that our that our democracy was in danger. Okay? Yes, it was terrible what they did. I mean, again, not as bad as what the Democrats say, but it was a bad thing, of course. But there's been no information that made this narrative that the Democrats are spinning that made it all come together. In fact, the information that they've given has only ever made their narrative fall apart. Okay? It's only falling apart. What have the hearings proved? They've been having these public hearings lately. Well, the hearings have just proved that nobody in Trump's orbit supported the Capitol invasion by the protesters. Like, there was nobody, you know, that we can't read Trump's mind to know what he thought of it, but nobody who surrounded Trump, who was texting each other that day, who was emailing each other, who had statements about that day, none of them supported this Capitol invasion, okay? And also what the, what the hearings have proved is that nobody in Trump's White House believed that the election was stolen other than Trump himself and also his personal lawyers, okay? When I say his personal lawyers... I'm talking about people like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, the people who were filling Trump's head with nonsense ever since the election. They 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 probably knew the election wasn't stolen too, but they were trying to convince Trump to fight this thing. Okay, all the people who were Trump's employees, people like William Barr in the Department of Justice, people like the chief of staff, uh, even Trump's own kids, they did not believe these theories that were being spun about how the election was stolen. Mike Pence, the vice president, he was never going along with any of this stuff that Trump was trying to do to overturn the election. So yes, it was bad that Trump was trying to do that stuff, but the hearings have proved he had no support (laughs) inside his white house. (laughs) He had no support. So anyway, the, the, the narrative that the Democrats tried to spin about January 6th, all they do is to show how much it was not a danger to our democracy, the exact opposite of the case they're trying to prove. And and they kind of know this. So Brian Stelter, the genderless potato head over at CNN, he tweets this. While a bipartisan committee of lawmakers is trying to present the full story of January 6th to the public, a media universe full of Trump allies is trying to do the opposite. <laughs> so Brian Stelter, Brian Stelter, okay, one of the main hosts at CNN, one of the longest running hosts they have over at CNN. He believes that the media universe is full of Trump allies. <laughs> the media universe where they, the only Trump ally you could say is probably Fox. Everyone else is anti-Trump. <laughs> but to Brian Stelter, it's a universe full of Trump allies who are trying to cover up the, sto- the real story of January 6th. And you know Brian Stelter knows he's lying whenever he says this because he turned off replies on this tweet to where nobody can reply to it. So he was not letting anyone, they got like five retweets, four, four responses, and he, he cut off replies. He got 27 likes. So there's something. Anyway, I, I think if anything, these hearings have shown how strong our American system is because it shows even if the president of the United States has some crackpot theory that's totally detached from reality, our democracy is still not in that much danger. Okay, because it would take a coordinated effort from the White House and Congress at a minimum. And even then, the Supreme Court could nullify nullify the unconstitutional stuff. They could rule on that. So it would it shows how strong our American system is. Even a crackpot conspiracy theorist in the White House can't stop the gears of our of our republic from turning. So nothing from the Democrats conspiracy theories has panned out. They don't have a a coherent story. Just like the Russian collusion thing, it's like no matter what happened with Russian collusion, it always supported some narrative they were trying to spin that Trump was a Russian asset. Even if the story that they were spinning today contradicted a story they were telling us yesterday. Okay? It, it never went anywhere. It, it's hilarious to actually watch. And that's kind of how it is with this January 6th thing. And no matter what information comes out, oh, it just helps their narrative in their head. Even if it contradicts the narrative they were giving us yesterday. So it's actually just kind of funny. And speaking of of funny, let's listen to a message from our president. Um, who apparently he hasn't seen any recent shows or movies or any commercials. Um, because he says interracial couples that they are not being represented in any of our media. So we're gonna pause here for a message from our president. There's something to that, yeah. No, I'm serious, you turn on the TV, look at the ads. When's the last time you saw biracial couples on TV? When's the last time you saw the way, I mean, people are selling products, they do ads to sell products. And they sell products when people, they appeal to people. This generation is gonna change everything. We just got to make sure we don't give up. I tell you, he's got his finger on the pulse when it comes to this culture. Okay, uh, the next segment today, our Noah Get the Boat segment, I want to talk about the return of Womixen. Okay, so if you remember from a few months back, I think this was during Women's Month, there was this debate between leftists, a, left, a left-wing civil war, over whether you should use the word woman or use their new word Womixen in order to describe women. Not that they even know what a woman is, but um, University of California, Irvine, So they have something called the Women's Center for Success, and this is how they spell it, W-O-M-X-N. The reason there's a debate about this is because when they put an X in the word woman, and like they put an X where the letter A should be or the letter E, when they put an X right there in woman to make it Womixon, they say Womixon is this new word that includes biological women and transgender women. So they say, we need a new word to show that we're being inclusive of transgender women. So they created Womixen. But then there was a backlash to that because they said, wait a minute, but transgender women are women. So we don't need a new word to describe them. We can just use the word women. So they had this debate over <laughs> what was called the transphobic spelling of or the inclusive spelling, they have a new problem with this this debate. Because when they say Womixen, they actually pronounce it woman. But they are concerned, because now whenever you use the term woman, they're not sure if you mean it with the X or the A, and this is not inclusive of blind people. Because a blind person who can't read whether there's an X there, they have no way of knowing whether someone is using the woke spelling or the transphobic spelling. So there's a whole new debate now happening over this word, mixing. Um, So anyway, I'm going to say something harsh here. Left-wingers love to do this thing where they pretend to care about disabled people. Now, I'm not saying that all left-wing people don't actually care about disabled people. I think everyone cares about disabled people on, on some level. But left-wingers pretend that they're the only ones who care about disabled people because they want to use people with disabilities to make themselves look more virtuous okay and it's not hard to draw that conclusion because you see something like this where they're trying to make you know whether or not we use the term we'll mix in to try to make that as saying it's not inclusive of blind people you know i don't think they actually care about blind people i think they just want to have one of their virtue signal debates <laughs> where they say oh look at me i'm more inclusive than you so anyway um, we'll keep you updated on the status of Womixon going forward. Okay, let's talk about what's racist for this week. Everything is racist! Well, like I said before, we got we haven't done one of these programs for like a month, so we have a whole month's worth of what's racist for this week to catch up on. So what's racist for this month? Let's go. Grades are racist. Oak Park and River Forest High School administrators are requiring teachers to adjust their classroom grading scales to account for the skin color or ethnicity of its students. That's right. Now students at those schools are going to be graded taking into account what their skin color is. In an effort to equalize test scores among racial groups, OPRF will order its teachers to exclude from their grading assessments variables it says disproportionately hurt the grades of black students. They can no longer be docked for missing class, misbehaving in school, or failing to turn in their assignments, according to the plan. (laughs) So... According to these schools, to be not racist, they say we're not going to hold it against black students anymore if they don't turn in their assignment. That's not going to give them a bad grade. <laughs> Just not turning in your assignment. No big deal because you're black. All right. Uh, also, graduations are racist. California State University, University Monterey Bay, for the month of May, they had separate graduation students for white students and black students. And if you were a black student, you got a diploma that said CSUMB black grad thank you for participating in the CSUMB black graduation that's a real thing they brought back segregation <laughs> they brought back segregation it's like wow once you guys show how progressive you are by giving black people their own bathrooms or water fountains too i mean these these the, these are the colleges these are the intellectuals of our society guys and they're dumb. The Root, which is a black supremacist website, <laughs> The Root was a little bit upset about the Amber Heard uh, trial, which I don't know if I even talked about that on here. It wasn't. It's not really something I care about that much. But Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, they had their big trial like a month ago. And, um, of course, they're both white people, but The Root wants you to know the Amber Heard verdict sends a message to black women everywhere. So... The Johnny Depp trial is racist, too. Moving on. Laughter is racist. Laughter is racist. Okay? Laughter, the new symbol of the far right, according to this, like, blog post written by Lucy Brown. Laughter is the symbol of the far right. (laughs) Oops, I'm sorry. I just laughed. I'm a white supremacist. (laughs) She's complaining, we call them racists. We call them rapists. We call them terrorists. And in spite of this, they laugh at us. (laughs) So laughter is a symbol of the far right in white supremacy. And then um, Bloomberg reports that monkeypox is racist. The World Health Organization will rename monkeypox virus to minimize stigma and racism. And then finally, oh, not finally, we have a few more, but here's one of my my favorites. Coffee is racist. Coffee is racist. According to the website IQFY.com which you need to check out that website. It is about the most insane website I've ever seen. So actually, before I tell you why coffee's racist, let me just, let me type this in. I-Q-F-Y dot i uh, I'm going to tell you, this is one of my favorite websites now. <laughs> so here's their first headline, self-care in the post-Roe versus Wade apocalypse. <laughs> this This is just great. Here's one. 13 Reasons White Women Were a Mistake. That's one of their headlines. The Unbearable Whiteness of the Male Gaze. So the male gaze is racist. Drag Queen Pastors Are Here and They're Saving the Church. That's one of their headlines. Okay, so that's that's just on their homepage right there. IQFY.com. Insane website. Um, We'll have to go revisit them down the road. But here's one of their headlines that caught my eye. Is coffee racist? How drinking coffee perpetuates white supremacy. So drinking coffee, guys, especially black coffee, that's racist. In fact, that reminds me to take a drink right now. It's good on the throat whenever you've been talking for 43 minutes. Okay. Um, Walmart is racist. Uh, In case you didn't know, according to CNN, tone-deaf corporations are facing a backlash or Juneteenth-themed products. So some companies were creating Juneteenth-style... Like, Walmart had a Juneteenth ice cream. Um, A children's museum, it says here on CNN, was selling a watermelon salad in celebration of Juneteenth. So, you know, it's summertime. Watermelon's a popular thing. But these corporations, this library, they're apparently tone-deaf. People are offended if you want to celebrate or make money off of this holiday the Democrats made up five minutes ago. They say, how dare you use capitalism to profit off the suffering of black people in history? <laughs> so <laughs> capitalism is the problem. And you're racist if you try to make money off of Juneteenth. So Walmart had to like pull back from having their Juneteenth ice cream. And that's that's just what, that's what we do. Now, it's kind of funny. They don't care about using capitalism for Pride Month. You know, you go to the store and there's rainbow stuff all over the place. They don't seem to care too much about that. But they get really offended if you have if you try to make money off of Juneteenth. So I don't know why they allow capitalism for Pride Month. And it, hey, it works. That's why these corporations do it. It's not that they care about gay people or whatever. Um, this is a way for them to make money. I remember I was walking to Walmart. This was last year. But last year in the month of June, I walk into Walmart and sitting right up front, where, like right where you walk in, Oreos—they have their Pride Month Oreos. It's like rainbow-colored Oreos, and and some girl immediately goes over and grabs them off the, the right where you walk in, or whatever the shelf thing was there. She goes and grabs them, and she says to her mom, "We need to buy this because of Pride." So this is just capitalism at work. It's just making money, okay, profiting off of the the holiday. But apparently, there's only certain holidays you can profit off of, um, or maybe more specifically, there's one holiday you're not allowed to profit off of and that is juneteenth okay um the next thing the bible is racist lifenews.com it reports abortion activist deborah messing calls the bible a dog whistle to nazis so okay that is what's racist that's everything that's been racist this month everything Now, before we go on, uh, I want to actually give you a feel-good story. Um, It's something I thought was a little bit nice. This is from the Star Tribune. The headline says, In a twist, let's go Brandon signs help a Minnesota boy with autism let go of his fears. So I'm sure you remember, let's go Brandon. That's the phrase that became popular last year uh, when there was at some, I think it was a NASCAR race. There was a group of people, they were shouting, uh, F Joe Biden using the F word saying blank Joe Biden. They were chanting that there was some reporter from like ESPN or CBS, NBC. I think it was NBC. She didn't like that. They were chanting this. So she tried to gaslight the people on TV by saying, Oh, listen to them. They're yelling. Let's go. Brandon. Cause a guy named Brandon had just had just won a race. So she says, listen to them. They're chanting. Let's go. Brandon. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, that became to me, you know, I don't. I don't just say let's go, Brandon, to mock the president. I kind of like to use it to mock the press because that's what it's really about to me. It's just the lying media. You know how they constantly lie, try to tell you that what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what's right on your TV, it's not really what you're seeing. They're fiery but mostly peaceful protests. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, that when I say at the start of the program that I'm an austere religious scholar, that's a reference to. When Donald Trump killed a terrorist in, uh, where was it? I think it was I- Iran. He killed a terrorist in Iran and the media wanted to make us feel sorry for the terrorists because they wanted to make Trump look bad. So they ran an obituary on the terrorist and called him an austere religious scholar. The, the man who had like killed American citizens, killed lots of people, that terrorist, they called him an austere religious scholar. So anyway, I've kind of stolen that. I used that to introduce myself. So to me, the Let's Go Brandon thing, it's just like another example of how the, the media constantly spews these lies nonstop. So, and then some people use Let's Go Brandon when they see you know the gas prices or see some other crackpot thing that our president's doing. Well, anyway, some good has come from Let's Go Brandon. Okay? There's a boy with autism named Brandon... And he's seen the signs and he thinks the signs are for him. And it's kind of sweet. Let's go, Brandon. The message flapped from flagpoles and clung to bumper stickers at the Texas RV park where nine-year-old Brandon Brunderj and his family were visiting from Minnesota this spring. Brandon has autism, which can make the world feel like a scary place sometimes. The family trip to Texas was full of new experiences and big decisions. Should he jump in the pool? Take the training wheels off his bike? The signs were telling Brandon to go for it. Brandon took the signs at their word. Mama, the people here love me, his mother remembers him telling her. They've got signs. They're cheering me on. So as you read the article, it it says that this boy Brandon, that he, that he learned how to swim. He learned how to ride a bike. And it's just kind of a sweet little feel-good story. So I want you all to know that whenever you say, let's go, Brandon, you are making the world a better place. Now, before I close down later, I'll just go ahead and mention this here. If you want to get in touch with Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast, you can send us an email to fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. And if you see some fake news, send it our way. Whoever gets it to us first, we'll get credit for it. And also to stay in touch throughout the week, we're on Twitter. It's at Fake News Weekly. And also, I'll mention this if you like Bible studies or if you just really dig the sound of my voice. I do have another podcast. It's called Cross References. Now, it has nothing to do with news or current events, but it's what I consider my main podcast. It has new episodes on Mondays. So just go look up Cross References on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast. You can also find my other one. Uh, Now let's go into a Beyond the Headline segment. So today's segment is going to be something that was posted on Baptist News Global. And it's written by Laura Ellis. It's called, Why I'm a Pro-Choice Christian and Believe You Should Be Too. So Laura Ellis is part of an organization within the Baptist Church. And it's a. And when I say this Baptist Church, I mean the Southern Baptist Denomination. Uh, and so the Southern Baptist Denomination, the, the Southern Baptist Convention is what it's called. Um, they are an accrediting body. They can ordain ministers. And generally, they don't ordain female ministers, female pastors, But Laura Ellis is trying to change that. So she's part of an organization within the Baptist church denomination that's trying to ordain female pastors. And so she's written this piece for Baptist News Global. Again, it's called Why I'm a Pro-Choice Christian and Believe You Should Be Too. So she's wanting to make a Christian argument in favor of abortion. Now, I've read the piece. I'm just going to have to tell you, she never actually does this in the whole thing. She repeats a bunch of lies and mischaracterizations of the pro-life position, but she never attempts to do like a biblically based defense for abortion anywhere in the whole essay. And, and, um, I was a little bit disappointed by that because the the, the whole thing was trying to make a so-called Christian argument in favor of abortion, but she never says why we should allow abortion. As I said, all she does is just repeat a bunch of tired lies about pro-life people, um, And by the way, I'm going to say this too. I don't think someone, in more of a a legal sense, okay, I don't think you necessarily need a Christian argument or a biblically-based argument in order to oppose abortion. You know, pro-lifers are often accused of trying to legislate some kind of biblical morality whenever they oppose abortion. But you know what? There's nothing inherently Christian about not wanting to kill babies. (laughs) That's actually just a—that's a pretty basic part of the human moral code of ethics— you know, if you went back in time to almost anywhere in history and you said, hey, you know, I don't think we should rip babies apart one piece at a time. You know what? Most people would have been pretty cool with that. They would have said, oh, you know, they wouldn't have called you some Christian fundamentalist for saying that. They wouldn't have been like, my gosh, you don't want to rip apart babies? Get out of here with your Christian extremism. You know, not killing babies, that's actually something pretty basic. So I don't I don't even really see Christians trying to make some Christian based argument to the pro choice crowd when they talk about why they oppose abortion. Um, we just basically say that it's wrong to kill an innocent individual human being. Okay, and you don't need to be a Christian to agree with that statement. All you need to believe is that humans have value, that we have inherent worth, which basically all people believe that already. So anyway, Laura Ellis she writes this essay, and a lot of it's a history lesson. It goes through a lot of history of the religious right, and I'm not necessarily going to argue with her recounting of history. I would rather argue with the conclusions and the opinions that she draws from it. So let me just skip right to that. She writes, Leaders like Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell were searching for a cause that would unite evangelicals, who up to this point were largely uninvolved in politics, to create a common and powerful political movement. They found that cause— in school segregation. She continues, they banded together to form an early version of the religious right, connected by their mutual hatred for government oversight and the demanded desegregation of Christian schools. Their primary purpose for, of upholding segregation was packaged with claims for, of religious freedom for private schools. Now, so she's saying the religious right formed because they were mad that Christian schools were being desegregated. I'm not sure if that's even true. She could be lying for all I know. That doesn't even really matter to me. But what I want to do is argue against the conclusions that she draws from those historical facts, regardless of whether they're actual facts. Let's just take her out of her word that this is true. Her argument, then, is that the religious right has racist origins. And so, therefore, that their opposition to abortion is rooted in racism. And so, therefore, we can disregard the religious right of 2022 because whatever it originally stood for was racist, she says the marriage between the religious right and anti-abortion activists was tainted from its conception, and it will always be burdened by the shameful fact that its union began not to support the sanctity of life but the sanctity of power. Okay, so so she's saying that we, we can disregard anything the religious right says because several decades ago, it came together to oppose desegregation. Okay, so there, so therefore it's racist. We don't have to listen to it. I want to point something out to Laura Ellis. Do you want to know what else was formed for racist reasons? A little thing called the Democratic Party. <laughs> they were formed in the early 1800s as the party of Indian removal and also the party of slavery. They were the party of the Confederacy in the Civil War. And they fought to preserve slavery because the southern states, those were the heavily democratic states, And they were so dependent on slave labor. So the Democratic Party has racist origins. Do you want to know what else has racist origins? The Southern Baptist denomination. They split off from the Northern Baptists. That's why they have a Southern and a Northern Baptist group today. Although the Northern Baptist group is almost irrelevant because it's so small. It's basically just the Southern Baptists who are the Baptists of today. Now, despite that, that the Northern Baptists have faded away. The Southern Baptists, in the 1800s, they formed to split off from the other Baptists specifically because they opposed the abolition of slaves. Now, they have since then repented, publicly apologized for this many, many times, but they acknowledged this. That was their true origin. So can we disregard the Southern Baptists? Can we d- disregard the Baptist denomination, essentially, because it had racist origins? I want to point out one more thing to Laura Ellis. Something else with racist origins was Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in the country. Planned Parenthood was was formed as a way to promote eugenics, the systematic eradication of the black race in America. Planned Parenthood founder, Margaret Singer, she spoke to the KKK and even to this day, it started this way and even to this day, it intentionally sets up shop in black neighborhoods to kill more black children. There's some parts of the U.S. where if you are an unborn black child, you are more likely to be killed in the womb than to even be born. The black abortion rate in this country is way, 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 way higher than their proportion of the population. And so Democrats of the past 50 years, they have been successful in killing more black babies than any other movement in American history, including the slave-owning South, the KKK, which by the way, those were all Democrats too, <laughs> just Democrats of a different time. And today they're killing more black babies than anything else in history ever has. So, I just asked this to Laura Ellis. If having racist origins means that you can be disregarded today, that would mean that we could disregard the Democrat Party and the Southern Baptist Convention and Planned Parenthood. I hope she realizes that. Let's continue with what else she says. She says, We can't be so naive to claim abortion bans are solely about preserving life or decreasing abortions. They're also about expanding conservative power packaged in the incredibly flashy goal of saving unborn babies. So I want to say two things to this. Well, one, abortion bans do decrease abortions and preserve life. That's a lie that you'll often see, is that you can't prevent abortion, you can only prevent safe abortions. That if you ban abortion or make it illegal, Women will just give themselves abortions in back alleys or with coat hangers, you know, all that all that stuff that they say. Now, I do believe there are some radically insane murderous women who would literally stab themselves with coat hangers in order to kill their children. I'm sure they're out there. Okay? There's insane people all over the place. But do abortion bans preserve babies' lives and decrease abortion? Absolutely, duh. Anytime you introduce friction, okay, anytime you criminalize a certain action, you have less of it. We have proof of this. Last year, Texas basically introduced an abortion ban. They banned it after the heartbeat of the fetus, which is like six weeks, okay, from NPR. Abortions in Texas fell by 60% in the first month under the most restrictive abortion law in the U.S. in decades, according to new figures that for the first time— reveal a full accounting of the immediate impact. Okay? Most women who would go to a facility, like today, most women who would go to a facility today to have an abortion carried out by a medical doctor, they would not necessarily go to a back alley and have some stranger do it for them. So abortion bans, making abortion illegal, does decrease abortions. Further data here the Guttmacher Institute, and the CDC. They have studied abortion rates after abortion was legalized across America in 1973. They say in five years, the amount of abortions in the country had doubled, from 1973 to 1978. The amount of abortions doubled once they made it legal everywhere. I read that right from the CDC's website. Okay? So let me read again what Laura Ellis says. She says, We can't be so naive to claim abortion bans are solely about preserving life or decreasing abortions. They're also about expanding conservative power packaged in the incredibly flashy goal of saving unborn babies. (laughs) So besides the fact the first part's a lie, just notice there what she says toward the end, the flashy goal of saving unborn babies. Okay. As I said before, I've read through the piece. I'm going to spoil something here. She never once makes a counter argument to this. She just says, well, pro-life people have a flashy goal of saving unborn babies. So what is her position then? That unborn babies can just die? Like, what's her counterargument to that? What's the Christian argument that it's okay to slaughter unborn babies? She never even tries to make it in this piece. She just mocks pro-life Christians for wanting to save them. So here's what I want to say to people, you know, to you who are listening if you're pro-life. I think we need to change our vocabulary a little bit on this issue so that we can force Democrats to defend what they don't want to even acknowledge, okay? I think we need to start referring to unborn children as unborn people. Now, why do I say that? Well, because that's a legal argument. Personhood is a protected class, okay? Genocidal maniacs in history, like the Nazis, what they always tried to do was remove personhood status from the people they didn't respect, like the Jews, okay? Racial supremacists. They try to say that black people are not people, and so therefore they don't get constitutional rights. Even in the Constitution of America, it said black people are three-fifths of a person. And, And I realize why they tried to say that back then, but here's the thing. You try to say someone's not a full person so they don't count, okay? Same logic, and that is what leftists are doing to unborn babies today. So I think when we discuss this issue, we need to refer to them as unborn people. And then, if a leftist wants to take issue with that terminology, then they have to explain why the unborn are not people, okay? So then they are placed in the position of explaining why innocent individual human beings can't be considered people. Now, I'm sure they're going to have some arbitrary reason to do it, which is going to make no logical sense, but they have to come up with something and they have to own it. So we need to start calling them unborn people and force them to defend why an unborn person is not a person. They don't want to do that, by the way. They don't want to have that conversation because they have no logical basis to deny personhood to a human being, but make them do it. If they're going to say we can rip them apart, make them explain why that human being is not a person. Okay. Now back to Ellis. She says, one of the biggest critiques of anti-abortion activists, pro-life slogan is that often these activists fail to support other political causes that preserve the life of the child after being born. Barnhart continues by saying that unborn are, in short the perfect people to love if you want to claim you love jesus but actually dislike people who breathe prisoners immigrants the sick the poor widows orphans all the groups that are specifically mentioned in the bible they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn so again this this idea that we talked about earlier in the program that that pro life don't care about that pro life people don't care about people after they're born they say if you're pro life you're really just pro birth that you don't care about taking care of people after they're born. Okay, so that idea is a fiction and a lie. Pro-life people have established virtually every crisis pregnancy center that you've ever heard of. The adoption rate among pro-life Christians, I did look up the statistics, it's more than double that of the national average. Pew Research, it says that 65% of Americans who attend church weekly, that they have also donated time, money, or goods to the poor in the past week. And that's only true for the average American 41% of the time. I also read that 45% of Americans who attend church have done volunteer work in the past week compared to 27% of other Americans. Regular churchgoers donate three times as much of their income as those who don't attend church. 65% of foster parents who are people who attend church regularly compared to 39% of the general population. So, <laughs> pro-life people, Christian people, prove with their time and their money That they actually care about the poor. More than the average American, more than the average Democrat. So any leftist can just shut right up about this repeated slander of pro-lifers. It's not true. They say that you can't really be pro-life unless you're willing to accept all of their socialist policies. Okay? The left-wingers have been in charge of this country for the past two years in America. Look where it has gotten us. Radical inflation. Record high gas prices. They took over health care a decade ago. What do we have? We have way more expensive health care than before. Democrats run almost all the big cities in America. Where do we have the highest rates of poverty and homelessness and crime? It's in those big cities. Liberal policies make everything worse. They did a big defund the police movement two years ago. Now we have skyrocketing crime and murder rates in the cities. They threw a fit about George Floyd. But now twice as many black people are getting killed in homicides. Why? Because they ran the cops out of these majority black neighborhoods. Who does inflation and crime spikes and gas prices, who does that hurt the most? It hurts the poorer people. But then they claim that right-wingers are the ones who don't care about the poor because we don't want to do all their left-wing social programs and policies that make everything worse. They claim that Trump got all these people killed by COVID, but then just as many people died under Biden's presidency in the same amount of time. So all of this stuff, when they say you can't really be pro-life unless you accept all of our socialist policies, all of that is just a ploy by Democrats to try to defend abortion without having to talk about abortion, okay? Because anytime you want to talk abortion, they don't want to talk about how a doctor reaches into a woman's womb with a pair of forceps, rips the child apart one piece at a time, then they go reassemble it on a table to make sure that no pieces were left behind. Sometimes they pull the squirming living child out of the womb and kill it after it's been removed from the mother. Okay, for some reason, they don't want to talk about that. So they try to change the subject and say, well, if you're not a socialist, if you don't want to provide for that baby and its mother's needs for the rest of their lives, then you aren't really pro-life. They just do that to try to distract you from the fact that they dismember babies in the womb. So don't go down their rabbit trail. Make them talk about what they want to do to the unborn, to unwanted people, Overturning Roe, that I'm reading from Laura Ellis again, Overturning Roe does not support life. It assumes that some life, some bodies, are worth more than others. That some bodies can and should be restricted, controlled, and used at will. (laughs) So that's what she accuses pro-life people of doing. But that's exactly what abortion does. It says that some bodies, the bodies of unborn people, that they could be ripped apart and dismembered. Okay, an unborn child has a body. That's a scientific fact. When Roe v. Wade passed 50 years ago, people said things. They'd say, it's just a clump of cells. That you could get away with saying that because scientific data had not progressed to the point that people understood as much as they do today. That we know it's not just a clump of cells, it's a tiny person. Ellis says, I am a pro-choice Christian for a number of reasons. And not the least of these reasons is the reality that restricting and banning abortions does not work. I want to see a war, a world with fewer abortions. And I, and I believe the majority of people on both sides of this issue want the same thing. So this person says they're a Christian. Now they aren't, but they claim to be. Why do they want to see fewer abortions? Are abortions wrong? And if they aren't wrong, then why do you want fewer of them? If they are wrong, why do you want to keep them legal? So I guess she would disagree that abortion is murder. But what is it then? Like, is it wrong at all? How wrong is it? And where's your basis for that? Where's your biblical basis for that? If you're, you know, you're saying this is the Christian argument, use the Christian Bible. What's your argument? Well, she never gives one. And again, I don't personally need a religious argument, but she's the one who claimed to have one. Her article is called, Why I'm a Pro-Choice Christian and Why You Should Be Too. So where do Christian ethics and biblical morality Intersect with her argument, her argument that it's apparently okay to dismember small people in the womb. In case you have trouble understanding this from a moral standpoint, especially from the the Christian moral standpoint, replace the word abortion with murder and see if your statement still makes sense. For example, in her essay, Ellis quotes from a Presbyterian minister named Carl Boaz who aided women in seeking abortions. But I'm going to replace the word that he uses, the word abortion, I'm going to replace it with murder. Let's see if this still makes sense in a Christian understanding. This is what Carl Boas said. I never judged women for the reasons they gave for needing a murder. Instead, I trusted women's judgment and helped them find a safe place to murder their child. Does that clarify the issue a little bit? Because the Bible doesn't use the word abortion. That's a modern word. But it does use the word murder. It uses the phrase, the shedding of innocent blood. And Ellis's whole piece never addresses the question, of why it should be morally permissible for a Christian to support the murdering of unborn children, people who were created in the image of God. That is a theological question. That's the crux of the whole issue, according to her. And so I got to say, I'm disappointed, but not surprised that Ellis never dared to touch it. And I have to say, I'm quite disappointed in the pro-life crowd as a whole over the past few days, because I've seen a lot of outrage and outcry on social media from the left, over this decision, I have seen very, very few posts of excitement or celebration from the pro-lifers and from the Christians that I I always thought they were fighting for this issue alongside me. Now, I know that we on the right, we're not used to winning (laughs) these cultural or legal battles. So so maybe they just don't know. They don't know how to act. (laughs) Maybe whining just comes more naturally to most of us. But this is not a time to keep silent just because you're afraid of backlash. This is a time to celebrate what happened at the Supreme Court last Friday. This is a victory for God. If you're a Christian, that's how you should see it. This thing we've been praying to God for for years, this is a victory for God. So why are you not going to celebrate God's win? Don't just clam up because you're afraid of offending the devil. I mean, I'm really, really disappointed by the silence of what I thought were a lot of pro-life pastors and churches who should be celebrating this week. And instead, they're posting this vague nonsense like, let's remember... A lot of women are scared and hurting today, so don't be rejoicing over the Supreme Court decision. I say screw that, because I thought the Bible told us to care for the oppressed, not to comfort their oppressors. Okay, a woman who goes to a doctor to have her baby ripped apart, that is an oppressor. And that baby is oppressed. And we got too many Christians today who are afraid to point that out. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Um, I hear pastors complain all the time about... How their people, um, meaning the people at their church, that, that they listen to right wing radio commentators or Fox News, or they get more influenced by Dan Bongino or Ben Shapiro than, than by their church, by their pastors. And, and you know, the, I hear this line a lot. They say, well, I only get my people for an hour each week, but T- Tucker Carlson gets them for five hours Monday through Friday. Well, let me just point this out for all you pastors out there who are a little concerned about that. Maybe they're listening to the news stations rather than their pastors, because at least the news people are equipping them to engage the public on these significant cultural issues. And the churches are not making that a priority. You know, and I mean, I'm saying this as a pastor, okay? I'm not against a Bible study and all that stuff. But let's teach people how to take the Bible and make it relevant to the issues that our society, our culture is facing. That's what people want to be um, informed about because they leave the church and they go out and they talk to people and they might get into debates with people. And, and we need to, I think, one of the things the church needs to do is equip people to be able to talk about these things and what the Bible says about them. Because um, if they're not going to get it from you, they want to have those conversations with people, but they're going to have to go listen to Matt Walsh or listen to Ben Shapiro, you know, someone who can help them think through these things and be able to communicate and defend a conservative. And, and oftentimes what I would say is a biblical response on these issues. The churches haven't been making that a priority. They haven't made apologetics a priority. They ignore things like drag queen story hour, which is one of the greatest horrific things that is going on in the country right now. Um, the, the drag queens visiting the schools, as, as we mentioned a few times today, they're not teaching people the facts and the data on abortion and, and how to have a philosophical discussion about, um, about what a person is, what a woman is, <laughs> you know, why we shouldn't kill them in the womb. So I think pastors, if you want people to be a little more engaged with what you have to say, you need to engage a little more with the culture. I'm not saying you need to be a right wing um, podcaster or radio show person. I'm not saying you have to just copy them but talk about some of the things that people want to hear about and learn how to think through in a biblical Christian way, okay? Because another thing we're seeing kind of like with articles like why I'm a pro-choice Christian and why you should be too, okay, the, the definition of a Christian um, is, is becoming looser and looser as time goes on. It's kind of like, you know, Matt Walsh's thing where he went around and interviewed people about what is a woman. I kind of like to pose the question, what is a Christian? Because when, when he posed the question, what is a woman— People said, oh, it's anyone who identifies as a woman, which was a circular definition. And he did a whole documentary pointing that out, pointing out that the left no longer has a definition, a definitional understanding of what a woman is, what womanhood is. They don't have that anymore. And also, I'm seeing the same attitude play out in churches. Uh, not, not specifically like my own church, but I mean, across the country, people don't have a working definition of what a Christian is. They just say it's anyone who identifies as a Christian. But they don't teach that you need to actually follow Christian biblical principles to get our definition of Christian from the Bible, which is the book that was specifically written <laughs> to tell us how to, how to follow God, how to be a disciple of Jesus, a.k.a. a Christian. So what is a Christian? It's not Laura Ellis. It's not just anyone who identifies as one. It's someone who actually follows what Jesus said, what the Bible said, And, um, and that, that way of thinking, even that specific of a definition that's being lost in modern times. Um, speaking of Matt Walsh, as we mentioned a minute ago, last year, one interesting thing he did was he actually traveled to Virginia. He's not from Virginia. I think he lives in Nashville, but he, he rented or, or, I mean, I say rented like, but temporarily legally became a landowner in Virginia so that he could be considered a legal resident. He just did it temporarily. But he went to all that trouble just so he could speak at their school board meeting because they said you have to be a, a resident of Virginia, a resident of the county that it was in. I think it was called Loudoun County. You had to be a resident of that county to speak at their school board meeting. So he temporarily became a resident of that county so he could go to the school board meeting and speak up against their transgender bathroom policy. Because the school was trying to implement this transgender bathroom policy at a, in, in a school where a boy had abused that policy to rape a girl. He went into a bathroom with a girl who was by herself and he was allowed to be there because he identified as transgender and he raped her. And they were trying to cover this up. So he actually went to Virginia, went to all this trouble. I know it was kind of a publicity stunt. He was trolling them. Sure. But also all I could think was, why is there not a pastor in that town? who would go and speak at that school board meeting? Why does it have to be a right-wing podcaster who goes to address the town and make a big deal about this? Were there not any pastors in Loudoun County who could go to that same school board meeting and speak up about this? So here's what I want to say to the Christians out there. We need to go a little more public, okay? And and when it comes to this Roe versus Wade decision, I hope you are publicly celebrating it, okay? Because you might catch some flack for that, but that's okay because we need to learn how to deal with flack. We need to learn how to respond to the left wing arguments, which means we have to listen to them make them. So if you catch some attention, catch some hate, let them make their case. And don't worry too much about it, because if they're anything like Laura Ellis, if they're anything like the vast majority of pro-abortion people, they have no argument. They can't come up with a reason that it's okay to kill innocent individual human beings in the womb. They really struggle to do that. So they're not even going to try. All they're going to do is attack you and you probably aren't going to have much of an argument to knock down anyway. But at least, I'd say make the opportunity. Learn how to talk about this stuff with people. Because this is how we change the culture. A lot of modern people, they say stuff like, how could Christians in America, how could they have ever fought for slavery or supported the Confederates? You know, we talked about that with the Southern Baptist Convention. That it was started in part, or the main reason actually. It was started because they, they wanted to pr- promote slavery and defend it. And so it was the Southern Baptists who broke off and started this, their Southern Baptist convention. I'm not saying anything against the Baptists. This was a long time ago, you know, back when a lot of the country was, was pro-slavery. But still, it's a fair question. How could any Christian have supported the Confederacy in its attempts to maintain slavery, to, to go against the abolition of black people? How could a Christian have supported that? But I have an answer for you. It's because we see those same types of Christians today. The same types of Christians today. And you want to know what kind of Christian it would be? It would be the ones who are getting all sad and glum about Roe versus Wade being overturned. Because I've seen a lot of that, and it's it's weird. I'm like, guys, haven't we been fighting for this for, for forever? Well, you know, since it started 50 years ago. Haven't we been fighting to overturn Roe versus Wade for forever? I'm only 30-something it's been my whole life. My whole life we've been wanting to see this. I, I tell you what, if some, and, and there's Christians out there who are, some are mad about it, some are silent. I don't, I don't. you know, silence is better than being mad about it, but my gosh, why won't you say something? Don't be a coward. Speak up. You know, I don't get it because some of these, and they're, they're, you have this group of Christians, it's a lot of them, who are going on social media, and they're just expressing sympathy for women. They're not they're saying, you know, I know I, sh- I have mixed emotions about this. I, I know I should be excited, but I'm just thinking about all those women out there who are who are scared and we need to be able to meet their needs and you know going on with all that stuff. And these are the type of Christians that if they were around when the Emancipation Proclamation was being signed to free the slaves, they probably would have been posting stuff like, you know I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. I know I should be happy about freeing the slaves. But I also know there's a lot of slave owners who are scared today. They're scared about their future. They would probably be going on social media and saying that. So you wonder, why, would, why did so many Christians go with the flow of the culture 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and go along with slavery? Well, look at all the ones who are just fine with the slaughter of children in the womb. Okay, because they're the ones 150 years ago, they would have been saying on Facebook, well, well, how are you going to support the slave owners in your life going forward? You know, you aren't really pro-freedom unless you personally adopt all these freed slaves. I mean, who's going to provide them housing and income now? Is it going to be you? (laughs) They would have been doing stuff. They would have been saying, well, our economic system, it's just not ready for an influx of black people to own their own land. It's better to enslave them until we have socialism and a universal basic income. You could hear them saying that. If you oppose slavery, just don't own a slave. We shouldn't impose our morality on the rest of society. You know, it's so obvious to me now, those same Christians who are whining about Roe versus Wade today, they're the same ones who would have been defending slavery 150 years ago. They're Democrats today and they would have been Democrats then. Well, (laughs) I'm not going to whine. I'm going to celebrate because this has been a good week. Thanks for listening to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, if anyone tries to tell you that saying monkeypox is racist, that's just fake news.